On the last episode, we sat down with the Department Chair of Health Policy and Management at the IU Fairbanks School of Public Health near Menachemi, who took us inside why the cost of healthcare in the United States is so high, yet still has a low rank amongst other developed nations. Using the nursery rhyme Humpty Dumpty, near showcased how, as a country, we're pretty good at putting Humpty back together. However, we fail to explore why or even help prevent him from climbing the wall in the first place. If you missed last week's episode, I highly recommend you go back and listen because this week's episode is picking up where we left off. Let's get to the podcast. Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, alongside Associate Dean Phil Powell. And today we're going to conclude this two-part podcast by exploring what changes are on the way inside our healthcare system that will affect both doctors and patients. But before we dive into this week's content, we just want to say thank you for tuning in today. We work hard to put out a weekly podcast that helps organizations make better business decisions. And for those tuning in for the first time, we want to say welcome to the Kelly family. We're honored you're taking the time to see what we're all about. If you have any questions, suggestions for a topic you'd like us to explore, or just recommend a guest for our show, send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I. P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I dot E-D-U. And for those who are enjoying our podcast, it would mean the world to us if you could leave us a review on your favorite podcasting app. Your reviews help our show grow. All right, so last week, Nir Menachemi said, as a country, we spend on average $10,000 per person in the United States on healthcare. The focus on that spending is being able to put a sick person back together, yet Access to care is only about 10% of our overall healthy well-being. We fail to address or prevent people from getting sick in the first place. The healthcare system is a misnomer, and I focused on the term healthcare because we really have sick care system. But we also don't have the systemness associated with the term healthcare system. And systems, and I think of you know the best analogy as the digestive system, It's a whole bunch of things working together towards one common goal. Uh, And so our healthcare system doesn't work well inherently together across all these different settings. Matt, as you may remember, Nir also used the term fee-for-service as a way to describe how doctors see patients. A patient is sick, they go to the doctor, the doctor fixes them, and then the doctor collects a fee from the insurance company. In this system, In this way of doing things, there is little to no incentive for wellness, for prevention. As Nir also said, it can be perverse at times because the sicker a patient is, the more money that can be generated for the healthcare provider in this fee-for-service mentality, leaving a lot of room for poor decisions to be made that ultimately affect us, the patient. You ask someone in elementary school and they'll tell you it's your diet and your exercise, and those are all those health behaviors that in the 15-minute clinical encounter with your doctor, even though they know that's what's the most important, they just don't get a chance to focus on it, in part because that's not how the healthcare system gets financed. Reimbursement is for fixing you when you go wrong, not for counseling you on what to do uh, to prevent you from getting sick in the first place. So what can be done to change this mentality inside our current healthcare system? 
the first thing to understand is the culture of how we view healthcare as a country has to change. And here's the good news. It's already changing. Right now, we're in the midst of a literal revolutionary change to how we reimburse healthcare in this country. Uh, for the last seven or eight years, we have been transitioning off of this fee-for-service mentality and onto what's called value-based uh, healthcare. Leading the charge is CMS, which includes Medicare and Medicaid and uh, the big governmental payers of healthcare. Uh, and basically, they're recognizing that we're at this crossroad right now. We cannot afford as a nation to continue to spend as much as we do. And worse, we have an aging population that's going to go on to Medicare. This is the baby boomers. And mathematically, we just don't have enough money in the system to not focus on prevention anymore. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, there are roughly 76 million baby boomers that are starting to retire and entering those later years of life. If we look at the industry data, by 2020, the baby boomers are expected to double the cost of Medicare and Medicaid. Our cost of healthcare as a nation are going to explode. And this value-based healthcare could give us the answer to not only how to care for an aging baby boomer generation, but also how we can improve our healthcare system for all generations. At the most fundamental level, this change for the better starts with changing how physicians are compensated. Value-based says rather than focus on fee-for-service, where the incentive is to increase the number of patients that you see, Value-based purchasing are a collection of different payment mechanisms to physicians and, and hospitals that says, let's see if we can incentivize value. And value is basically the ratio between cost and quality. The way they're incentivizing value includes a full gradation of different approaches. All the way on the other end of the continuum is something called accountable care. And accountable care says, rather than paying you per person, per issue, per disease, per fix, it reconceptualizes payment to be, we will give you, an insurance company might assign a hospital system 20 or 50,000 patients and say, you are responsible for the care that all of these patients need for the next year. And we are going to pay you a fixed amount per patient per month. And once you accept that sort of contract, uh, you are responsible for keeping them healthy. If they all get really sick and come to you, that doesn't change how much you're going to make. You'll have to expend more resources to tend to their needs. If you're, however, able to fix, figure out a way to keep them healthy and keep their disease at bay so that they're not over-utilizing unnecessary care, you'll get to keep more at the end of every month because those individuals would not have used your resources that you made available to them. And so that really begins shifting the way doctors and hospitals think about what their role is. And that's in your interest under accountable care as a provider. It's in the interest of the insurance company who doesn't want runaway costs to continue to happen. And it's also in the interest of the patient who does not want the complication 
soon in their future. The second thing to understand is this change will not come easy because as organizational leaders, we already know how hard culture change can be just inside our company, let alone an entire industry. It's very stressful for physicians. It's very stressful for hospitals. It's very stressful for all the players where the rules are changing, uh, mainly because these entities, these individuals, have never really been trained to think this way. Uh, you rarely learn in medical school how to keep someone healthy. You are focused much more on the how to fix them when they are broken. How do you sort of engage a population that doesn't walk through your clinic doors? How do you think about things to keep them healthy and keep them managing their risk factors so that they don't get sick? When the entire history of your business and your conceptualization is about wait for them to show up in my waiting room and then fix them. And so this involves lots of things that healthcare just hasn't been doing well, that we have developed much better outside of healthcare. You know, I always think about how Delta, the airline, you know, gets my loyalty based on status that they give me. And I sometimes kind of scratch my head and I find myself in Atlanta on a layover just because I'm so lo loyal to the airline. And what I feel like I get is a glass of wine and a bag of peanuts. But nevertheless, I am intensely loyal and play the, uh, the game of I do what they want me to and then they do what I want them to do for me. I think healthcare organizations are now trying to figure out how to incentivize the patients that they are at risk for to engage in the behaviors that makes everyone win. And that is scary in part because it requires business skills. It requires uh, obviously healthcare skills, but it also requires sort of grounding in marketing, grounding in information technology, because you're gonna need to leverage a lot of data that's available to you. It requires uh, skills in strategy making and operations, which operations really focuses on quality improvement, which again plays into value. Uh, and so these are not the average things that you know physicians, for example, feel well grounded in. So at the end of the day, what we're seeing is the evolution of a system that better coordinates itself, a system that holds itself accountable. What Nir describes is healthcare systems that monitor the performance of each other so that that checks and balances creates an incentive to reduce costs and to deliver better care. In a system like that, if you're a provider, if you're a physician, if you're a hospital, it doesn't make sense to go it alone because you're not part of the larger ecosystem that helps to reduce your own costs. And this is what Nir talks about in terms of improving the system overall. When you are an accountable care organization contracting with, say, CMS for Medicare covered lives, and you get 80,000 covered lives uh, assigned to you, you as the accountable care organization needs to be able to provide every last service that this patient is going to need in your, market, in your market. And so you need to cover all the different specialty, all the different emergency, all of the different primary care, all of the different hospital, rehab, nursing home, anything this patient is gonna need. And so you have to band together into these larger consortiums, either formally or informally, 
right? And so you could be acquired and literally be a subsidiary of this, you know, larger group, or you can contract with them to be sort of business partners uh, to share these, you know, responsibility in the care that this person needs. Either way, whether it's formal or, you know, less formal, uh, you are now as a group of providers expected to coordinate what you all do for that patient better. Because for example, if someone gets their hip replaced, that might require a whole bunch of outpatient care prior. It then will require an inpatient stay. It then will require more post inpatient care. It then will require, you know, maybe some nursing or rehab sort of stuff. And then there might even be some home health associated with it after the patient is home and still needing maybe some kind of services. And if you as the entity collectively are all responsible for it, you are going to start saying, wait, you know, physical therapist, you guys are doing things that are not evidence-based. And that's taking money away from our shared hide that we were going to sort of each get a piece of. Or if the group determines that, you know, the orthopedic surgeons were doing things that were not consistent with sort of some of the best guidelines, someone might say, wait a second, we have no money left over because one of the team members that's responsible for the entire continuum of care that this person needs is inconsistent with best practices. And finally, the third understanding about how healthcare is changing is to see it in action. And so we developed this machine learning algorithm that's running live at Askenazi Health right now. And basically it helps identify in the morning when the entire roster of patients coming in today, uh, it helps identifying based on every bit of information that's available to us. And that includes all the information embedded in the electronic health record of that patient, all of the information available to us through the health information exchange in Indiana, and all the information that's available to us based on the zip code where the patient lives. And we have either zip code level data, or in some cases, even smaller census track level data of things like uh, crime rates, how far they are from a food desert, uh, whether or not there are sidewalks in the neighborhood, what the unemployment rate is. And we take all this information that is assembled from the Polis Center and the Regenstrief Institute and the electronic health record and all these different sort of partners that we have on campus, and we predict what the probability of you, the patient, uh, are of needing either a social worker or a dietitian, et cetera. That allows folks in the clinic to then match the neediest patients to the limited sort of providers that are available to help with those needs. And so if you're a diabetic who happens to live in the highest crime area and in a food desert, exercising and eating right is not an option for you. You need help with that. And let's just put this context either in the teen, a teen with diabetic. Mom's not letting him run around outside uh, if it's a high crime area. Mom's not letting them walk back and forth from school if there are no sidewalks. Mom's not able to really get the diet that this kid needs to get his disease under control uh, because there's no place to buy that kind of food. And by the way, even if there was, it's unaffordable because the quote-unquote healthiest food is also typically the most expensive. And so if we can have a 
dietitian intervene during that kid's diabetic sort of checkup. And instead of sort of trying to wait for that diabetic kid to have complications that we'll then sort of, you know, deal with, maybe we can proactively figure out a way to help that family cope with that kid's disease given their life circumstances. And so social workers know how to do that. Nutritionists know how to do that. All of these ancillary, what's called wraparound service providers know how to do that. What we found was, uh, and this article just came out in the current issue of Health Affairs, it's been getting a lot of attention nationally, both in the media um, and and in social media, that using this algorithm and using these wraparound service providers is able to save millions of dollars uh, in averted unnecessary emergency visits and in averted, you know, hospitalizations for, you know, some of the patients that are most vulnerable to having their health being exacerbated. And so this is just really scratching the surface of what's possible. Doctors and nurses can do what they do best. Social workers and dietitians can do what they do best. And patients embedded in their environments and communities are engaged in such a way that's consistent with their life situation. Uh, And so everybody hopefully wins and again is rowing in the same direction towards the shared goal of improved health for the individual. So let's recap. Last week, we explored the problems inside our healthcare system as a country. This week, we went into what changes are already taking place and what we can expect as doctors and patients. First, how we view healthcare needs to continue to change. Baby boomers are reaching retirement and our current system cannot support them. But the good news is we're starting to see the change take effect. Value-based healthcare offers ways to give patients superior care by focusing on prevention and doctors more incentives to keep people healthy. The second thing to know is change will not come easy. As leaders, a culture shift takes time, especially across an entire industry. Healthcare providers are currently at work figuring out how these changes will be made. And finally, the third thing to know about this change is we can see it at work right here in Indianapolis. Nir and his team have created a computer algorithm that pairs a patient's highest needs with the right specialist. Whether that be nutritionist, social worker, physician, or counselor, this program is already saving millions of dollars in unnecessary procedures, creating a win-win for both health providers and patients. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business, where we work hard to help organizations make better business decisions. I'm your host, Matt Martella, alongside Associate Dean Phil Powell. We'll see you next week.